Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. More and more, voters linger in the echo chambers of social media and television news. And increasingly, they describe their lives as lonely. We head to America's Midwest, asking whether these parallel trends explain why politics is so angrily partisan. And blue-chip companies are pumping more money and effort into wellness initiatives for their employees. But it's not just gym memberships and on-site massages. They're providing a lot of financial wellness, too. First up, though. According to the Indian government, all is well in the Kashmir Valley. But in reality, life for those who live there, most of whom are Muslim, is far from normal. There's no internet. Mobile phones don't work. Most schools, factories, and offices are closed. Troops patrol the streets amid frequent demonstrations. It began on August 5th, when this Indian part of Kashmir was stripped of the special status and autonomy it had enjoyed for the past 70 years. As part of this radical reorganization of India's most troublesome territory, the state was put on lockdown. After two months, it's unclear how the situation will end. The government would like to portray things as being normal, but it's far from normal. Max Rodenbeck is our South Asia bureau chief. You've got about 7 million people living in the Kashmir Valley who've had their internet and mobile phones suspended for the last uh, two months. There's a heavy, heavy presence of security forces, about half a million, in not a very big area. Uh, So, you know, virtually every street is patrolled and there are roadblocks and so on. Most shops and schools are closed down by a kind of virtual strike because people don't want to admit that things are returning to normal, although this is creating quite quite a lot of hardship, I think. Uh, So it's, it's rather tense and heavy, but actually not violent. You know, it's been peaceful, but people are very upset and life has certainly not returned to normal. Why is it that India has done this? Well, I think there are several layers of reasons. One is simple frustration. I mean, Kashmir has been a problem that that has been intractable for 70 years. And there's a a kind of frustration that India is a great, powerful country and it's unable to solve this small problem right on its border. So frustration is one thing. Then there's also kind of ideology. I mean, the current government of India is a Hindu nationalist government. And one of its election promises was that it would do something about Kashmir. And, you know, essentially what what, what the the plan was, was to lift the provisions that allow for a certain degree of autonomy for Kashmir. It doesn't actually change, substantially change things, but it it makes clearer India's real total control of, of, of the region. How have Hindus and Muslims in the rest of India reacted to all this? 
Well, the, the rest of India, I mean, there's a proportion here. I mean, India is 1.3 billion people and the unhappy Kashmiris are about 7 million people. So there are just so many more Indians than Kashmiris. Generally, Indians are quite happy about what the government has, has done. They feel this frustration built up over years and years. You know, during the strife in Kashmir at various times, at least 50,000 people have been killed, you know. So it's a long-burning problematic thing. The way other Indians look at Kashmir is as a problem place. These are problematic Muslims. You know, we have to teach them a lesson. We have to teach Pakistan a lesson and sort of kind of show who's boss here. That's the attitude. And the government has, has very much played up to that. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the response from, from the rest of India is pretty positive. And even in parliament, the opposition to the government felt sort of uh, uh, too um, shied from, from actually opposing this move because they, they were afraid of being cast as, you know, un, unpatriotic. Is there no dissent from India's Muslims outside the Kashmir region? Well, there is. I mean, there's an unhappiness, but the Indian Muslim community, which is huge, it's about 190 million people, but it's also very, very much divided up, uh, as is the rest of India, by language, by region, by caste, by all kinds of things, and doesn't unite really around this Kashmir issue. It never, they never have absolutely really united around it. And what about the, the relationship with Pakistan, with whom India has had this battle over the region for so long? How is it dealing with this new situation? Pakistan can't really do very much about it. I mean, Pakistan has not had a very uh, positive role in, in Kashmir either. For many years, uh, Pakistan has funded and sort of supplied uh, guerrillas uh, who've gone in from Pakistan into Kashmir and stirred up trouble. Pakistan has always looked at this region as because it has a Muslim majority, then it really should belong to Pakistan. Although, you know, the people of Kashmir don't particularly want to belong to Pakistan either. They're not happy with India or Pakistan. So the, the current move by India has uh, upset Pakistan because it involves uh, further diminution of, of the, the possibility that Kashmir might ever join Pakistan. So it's raised tensions to a certain extent, but not, not to the point that India and Pakistan are likely to actually clash over this. So reactions vary only between support or, you know, essentially d division or powerlessness. I mean, are there no credible challenges to this move? Essentially, no. I mean, there is no credible challenge to India kind of locally. Internationally speaking, I think there's a great deal of fatigue with these kinds of problems, to tell the truth. You know, India is a very big country and it's a rising power. And I mean, I, I don't think that there's going to be pressure in the United Nations that's strong enough uh, to do much about uh, India. And other countries that might be hostile to this move, uh, for example, China, well, I mean, India can easily point to China and what China has done to the, the, its own Uyghur Muslim minority, which is much more shocking and outrageous than what is happening in Indian Kashmir. In which case, how do you see this playing out if this sort of uh, territorial division remains in place? I mean, the, the region can't stay in lockdown forever. No, this is a problem. And it's not clear that the Indian government really had a, a sort of end game. I mean, people are, are, are increasingly frustrated. The economy in Kashmir is, is, is increasingly uh, fragile. And it's not clear how this kind of waiting game can play out. I mean, two months with no internet 
in a you know modern society is really very very difficult. It's it's cracking up uh, all kinds of things, uh, including the sort of medical system. You can't call you know there there's stories about people dying from lack of medical attention because they can't find the right people or the right medicines. And I think also there is still a question how the Indian Supreme Court will treat this. I mean, the Supreme Court in India has a has a bad record for actually standing up for. Uh, rights in the face of government power. But there are serious constitutional questions about the way that, that, that this latest action was taken. And there's serious constitutional questions also about the current kind of blockade, a uh, clampdown in Kashmir. There's growing apprehension in India that this doesn't look too good. So uh, there may actually be a, a kind of reaction from inside India. But for the nearer term anyway, you don't see an easy end to this. No, I'm afraid not. And I mean, the people of Kashmir, they've been through a lot over all these years. And I'm afraid this is just another unhappy chapter for a rather uh, troubled part of the world. Max, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. A pleasure. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In a divided era, political anger abounds. We shriek at one another. We shriek at the television. But is the problem that we're shrieking alone? So earlier this year, I drove along the banks of the Mississippi in Iowa. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. I went into an antiques shop in Clinton, which is right on the edge of the river, and I met Peg, the grey-haired owner of the store. She works alone, and apart from the occasional chat with customers who come in to browse, she mostly has for company just the noise of the television news. That's pretty much all that intrudes on her quiet. A Russian troll farm. Really, in here, it's noise. Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of time by myself. And, sure. And just the, keeps you company. The noise. Yeah. yeah. You know, the dog and the noise. Yeah. <laughs> so I asked whether she pays any attention to local news, but she was pretty clear she's only interested in the national stuff. I'm a political junkie, but it's yeah. all on cable. And she was very clear about which stations she watches on cable news. MSNBC, I'm not yeah. watching Fox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know which side I, I'm on. <laughs> and in her view, Americans are easily more divided than ever. She described to me how occasionally customers will stomp out of her store because they disagree with her own political opinions. I do think we've got to get back to the middle. But right now it's, it's nuts, it's, it's too, yeah. and I don't like all this chaos. Yeah. Uh, I don't like all this hate. She believes that nobody has respect anymore and the person she blames for that is Donald Trump. This guy, it just seems like, like he's given us 
reason to go too far one way or the other. And it's extremely clear that she doesn't like him. He doesn't know anything more than a two-syllable word, and he's yeah. dumber than a pile of rocks. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So after talking to Peg, I got back into my car, and I drove another 85 miles to the east, to the town of Cedar Rapids. And there I met another woman called Sally, and she's a straight-talking, curly-haired grandmother. She wears a check shirt. And it seemed to me that Sally and Peg would have a lot in common if they ever met. Both of them run small businesses, they fret over their medical bills, they're very fond of small dogs. And just like Peg, Sally said that she pines for a much friendlier past that apparently existed. As she prepared me a plate of French toast, she was telling me that these days she thinks hatred knows no bounds. And she believes the country is split between a ruling class and everyone else. And the ruling class, in her opinion, are those awful left-leaning elitists, the peddlers of identity politics, and the person to break up that division is Donald Trump. So why did you seek these women out? My intention was to look for people who would help me to understand how the polarization that we talk about, the division between people, might be caused by another fact that seems to be true about American life. And that is solitude, loneliness. There are so many reports telling us that people are more lonely than they've ever been, that we're all cut off from being in communities or being social. And I was wondering whether loneliness might be a cause of polarization. Well, I mean, there's seemingly a, a correlation there. What makes you think there might be a causal relation? So a poll last year by Cigna, a healthcare provider of 20,000 adults, found that 40% of them, or even a little bit more, felt alone, isolated, or left out. And other surveys suggest that the rates of loneliness have increased greatly in the last few decades. And there are activists and political commentators and politicians, such as Ben Sass, who's a Republican senator from Nebraska, who argue that isolation and loneliness are actually the cause of all sorts of political ills, that people feel alienated from each other, that we're sorting ourselves into anti-tribes, where we don't care about ideology, we don't care about policy. What we really care about is just beating the other side. And that's because in our daily life, we're much more cut off from normal social interactions. We're forming tribes as a substitute for this sort of social support that we used to have. And so your reporting suggests then that there is a strong connection there. The census data suggests that we are more solitary than we have been before, whereas 13% of households back in 1960 had just a single person in them. These days, it's more like 28%. I spoke to a sociologist who studies social isolation, Eric Kleinenberg, and he's written that indeed social isolation is a big problem. But what he found very hard to confirm, and I would agree with him, is it's very hard to measure loneliness and to compare over time whether it's getting worse because surveys don't really measure it very well. And he points out that every generation laments how it was so much better in the previous generation and how when I was young, there were far more social interactions than there are today. When the car became a very popular means of travel, that was blamed for more social isolation. The radio, the cinema, TV... These days, of course, we blame social media, the gig economy. The next generation, no doubt, will find something else to blame. So doesn't that kind of blow up the thesis then, that if loneliness is hard to measure and probably isn't changing, it's just the drumbeat of every generation's wistfulness, then maybe there's not a connection with the political polarization? Well, oddly, that might still 
not be true, because loneliness is perceived to be getting worse, and many people feel that they're more isolated, and they're being told by cable news TV, by social media, that everyone else is having a grand old time and involved in all these wonderful activities. And they may be encouraged to say, if others are forming into these hardline anti-tribes, those wicked leftists or those awful Trump supporters, then I'd better do the same myself, because that's a natural human response to defend myself, to form my own tribe. And so I think that even if loneliness is not objectively getting worse in a way that sociologists can measure, the human response to it may well be to be much more upset about it today than people were in the past. And so that's how you would explain the the attitudes then of Peg and Sally? Yeah, I think that if you were to look across the United States, you would find so many people, probably including myself, who live within a bubble, who focus on certain people they follow on social media, who read and watch certain news outlets that will shape their opinions more strongly into one tribe than another tribe. Whereas when we actually meet each other and talk, if, for example, Peg were to ever meet Sally, we'd probably find we have a huge amount that we agree on, that we would talk about healthcare costs, our grandchildren, whatever it would be that in human daily interactions would bring us together. By living in these more isolated, lonely worlds, we're seeing the reasons to be pushed apart. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There's a new thing to look out for in a potential employer's benefits package. To find out more, my colleague Anne McElvoy talked with Charlie Wells. He writes about business and finance at The Economist. Mindfulness training, weight loss programs, and luxurious massages in the office. No, not my daily schedule here at The Economist, just a few of the ways in which companies are investing in the well-being of their employees. But some businesses are taking employee wellness that step further. So this is taking the blue chip companies by storm. You've got Walmart offering its 1.4 million workers the ability to claim their wages before payday. We have Google offering one-on-one financial coaching to its staff. And Starbucks here in the UK is loaning its British baristas cash for their flat deposits. And why are companies adopting this sort of initiative, not usually only out of the goodness of their hearts? It sounds very hippy-dippy, and this really is sort of an outgrowth of that idea of wellness, that employees should be physically fit, they should be mentally fit, and the next step there is, why not financially fit? So they're going to look after me from cradle to grave at this rate, but can you give me a definition of financial wellness? It's a bit fluffy at this point, I have to admit, but firms and researchers generally recognize that financially well employees have more than just their retirement needs accounted for. So they're able to pay down student loans, they can tuck away enough money for an emergency, and they can avoid payday lenders. And how exactly do the personal finances of a worker impact on their employer's bottom line? So there's a certain survey that shows that about a quarter of America's employees are distracted by their finances in the office. And of those people who are distracted, 43% of them said they spent a total of three or more working hours each week thinking about or dealing with their finances. So that's going on an app, checking your bank balance, hoping that there's enough in there, looking at your credit card statement, worried about how much you may have spent. And that is a drag on business. And it's interesting because it reminds me of the way companies endlessly push health checks on us. 
apparently because they care whether we live or die, but also because they think that there's a good return on that. This is a bit more like a financial health check, I guess. It really is. And these are not sort of boring biannual pension webinars where you sort of pick between in a range of really boring. Oh, yes. We, we know mm-hmm. them too well. <laughs> that is exactly right. These involve slick apps. They might involve coaching sessions that happen over time. And they really are inspired from those health and well-being interventions that you mentioned. And one obvious criticism might be, if employees are struggling so much with their finances, why not just pay them more? Well, that's a really good point, and that has certainly been brought up in the discussion over this. And what advocates of financial wellness say is they're creating financial health, not necessarily creating financial wealth. So I think we all know people who do make oodles of money and who do run out at the end of the month. I I remember reading an article fairly recently about, you know, people making six-figure salaries and still feeling broke. And so this is about behavioral change, not necessarily wealth creation. And how strong is the evidence that these programs really work at all in practice? Academics are just starting to look into this, and they're finding some positive outcomes. Employees saying that they feel better about working at companies that offer them financial wellness programs, but the jury's still out. And how do you think this compares with something like the longed-for massage in the office? Are they working in the same way and and do employees feel the same about them? Look, I would love a Swedish massage at my chair. I would love to have paleo cookies available for me. But I don't think that as an employee, I could enjoy those benefits if I were fretting about my finances. So call me overly practical, but I'd rather have financial advice than a massage. You've declared your choice. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radiooffer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organisation better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.